Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So what page of a book is the most important to you? You know, you, and you know, maybe you don't think in terms of that, but you know, maybe some of you are like, well, it has to be the first few pages because if they're lousy, I won't even really finish the book. I'll just stop right there and I'll just put the book down. Others are saying, no, no, for me, it's got to be the end because once I get to the end, then finally everything is, is being resolved and, and that's the great Or Somebody says, no, no, I only like the action scenes, right? I don't want any of, any of that other kind of stuff, but I love the action, you know, and some of you are saying, yeah, but you can't really do that because character development takes place from like page one all the way to the, the very, very end of the book. And it's the character development that give all of the other scenes their power. And so you can't really just pick, pick, a, pick a page. I mean, it wouldn't really work like that. You need the whole thing. And I do know that if a book has no ups and downs or twists and turns, it would actually be a, a pretty dull read overall. So now imagine that your life is a book. And on top of that, not just a book, but maybe it is a whole series of books. Like maybe you are like, like a, a box set. Like, you know, this, this here, this is, this is the, the Tolkien Lord of the Rings and they throw the Hobbit in because of course you have to throw the Hobbit in at the beginning of it. But, you know, this is like an epic series. And imagine that, that your life is an epic tale, a multi-volume, many-chapter tale. How would you know what's going on with just a page? Right? I mean, how would you be able to uh, really kind of understand how all the different characters fit in? Because you're experiencing it just, just one page at a time. You know, it's one thing when, you, when you've already read a book, now you know how each page fits in, but, but that's not how we live our lives, right? We, live, we just live one page at a time, really one sentence and one paragraph at a time. It'd be hard to, to really understand how all of it fits together, especially the chapters that are filled with heartache and suffering. I mean, how could they possibly make any sense when you're experiencing them in these littler blips? It would make you start to ask, what is God actually up to in my life? I mean, what is he actually doing? Because when you read God's word, it tells this perplexing story about how God oversees his world and interacts with our lives. I mean, very often it seems, God allows, or dare I say, causes heartache and misery 
in our lives? What is he up to? I mean, he seems to disrupt or at least sit on the sidelines as our lives spiral out of control. Why? I mean, why must we suffer? Why the pain? So we're going to be wading back into the book of Ruth. We've been studying it this whole series called Hope. And we're going to be taking this particular topic, by the way, of suffering. We're going to be taking it on again during the Easter series in a couple of months. But we're going to take it from a more philosophical perspective. Uh, talk a little bit more about some of the rationality of it and, and some apologetic stuff like that. But for this morning, we're going to be taking it from a slightly different perspective as we look at Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. Now, I can't give you all the full background that we've been giving each week. We've just got to kind of keep moving and assume some of that background knowledge. If you have not heard the past messages, I'd encourage you to catch them online. It'll give you some of the backstory, uh, as well as I'd encourage you just to read the book of Ruth a few times this week. It's only four chapters. You can read it a bunch of times, and it'll really start to help you get a sense as to some of the things I'm assuming and or kind of giving us a shorthand uh, explanation to this morning. I just got to do it for uh, the sake of time. So, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. In the scriptures, the person's name often carries a meaning, and that meaning can often be significant in the story. And in this case, Naomi, her name means pleasantness. And I mean, isn't that so sweet? Imagine that is how you go, go through your whole life, right? And somebody, you, every time you meet someone, every time you introduce, everyone knows you as pleasantness. And of course, I think that's lovely because it's what we would want for our lives. I mean, we all want a pleasant life. I mean, who wouldn't? It, it, would, it, would, seem, it would seem very odd if you told me you didn't want the pleasant life. But what is the pleasant life? What does it look like? How do we define it? How do we understand it? Because you might say, well, for me, a pleasant life would mean that I have a spouse that, you know, respects me, that isn't pushy. Okay, I mean, nobody wants a really pushy. That's not going to help my pleasantness. I need a pleasant kind of a spouse. But I also, you know, want them to really be a spectacular lover. And uh, by the way, no medical problems because, like, that's a really, that's a big killjoy. And I hope that they would die after me because that would be a total bummer. Wouldn't want that in my pleasantness. And if I, you have kids, well, then I want kids who work really, really hard and they respect their parents and without asking, they do their own laundry and dishes and things like that. I mean, that would be amazing because they're going to make us proud. And, and I also want them to give us well-timed grandkids, not too soon, not too late and lots of them, but not too many, but just the right number. Um, and then I, I want them to take them home. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the kids, by the way, they would never wrestle with, like, any sort of addictions or have any sort of, like, debilitating diseases or anything like that because, you know, that would totally mess up my pleasantness. And, of course, they would die, like, long, 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 long after, after me because parents should not have to ever bury their kids. 
If you have parents, well, my goodness, I wanna, I, we want our parents who will give us freedom when we're younger, autonomy that we need, and then when they get old, we don't want them to really cost too much because you know, then we got to take care of them and all that, and that's a total killjoy. And so, you know, we can't do that. For friends, you know, I want loyal friends, and, you know, I want them to, to be great, you know, and intellectually stimulating, but not really too demanding on me because, you know, I don't really like that, and you know, I would have a fulfilling job, and I would have a boss that, like, regularly recognized my brilliance and contribution to the team, and I don't want any difficult people at work because it's ugh, like, who wants that, right? And so you don't want any difficult people at work. I mean, that would be the pleasant life. That everybody we knew or cared about didn't really have any issues or problems, and of course, I wouldn't either. I mean, that is the kind of pleasant life that you could even call blessed. I mean, you could post that all day long, right? There could be all sorts of cool pictures that you could place, like, here are all of my awesome friends. Click, post. This would be fantastic, all the cool stuff we're doing. But what if that's not what God considers the blessed life? What if God allows or causes unspeakable heartache? We see it throughout the scriptures. Look at verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husbands. We are at verse 5. This went south fast. This is not blessed at all. Not even a little bit. Hope for this pleasant life crumbles, stripped of all of her earthly desires for this long, happy life with her husband and with her sons and her grandkids. Naomi is now a heartbroken widow left in despair. Not blessed. I started thinking about this. I'm like, you know, what would it be like if we always posted our not blessed pictures? How depressing social media would end up being, right? And then I thought, no, actually it wouldn't because nobody would really put the opposite of their blessed pictures. We would never do that. We would never actually put like all of the really heartbreaking kinds of things. We would do things like this, like at least we get a chuckle out of her bad wedding day. You know, it's like that was not foreseen. Uh, but then, you know, you do funny pictures of your dogs. Like, like, oh, come on, mine are cute. That is ugly. And, you know, you could do stuff like that. Or you could always remind people of the butt fumble, you know, and about being crushed by a very large butt. Like that would be a definitely not blessed day. Every animal experiences this kind of, a, of an experience. We wake up feeling that way sometimes, right? I love sports because like when you, I mean sports like blooper kind of pictures because, you know, they always feel like it's a not blessed moment. These are the kinds of things, I mean, would we really actually talk about what our lives would be like if we felt like we were not blessed? See, Naomi's pain causes her to lose the dream of a pleasant life. Her story has taken a very dark turn. And this is a very, it's a very sad and a very depressing chapter in her life. I mean, look at verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. 
And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Imagine that. Can this be the pleasant one? Is, could this be the one with the blessed life? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I mean, who wouldn't respond in this way? She went from pleasantness to bitter. And her life really is so bitter now. Her dreams are crushed. Her story dark. And from the looks of everything, it's because of God. This is heartbreaking. So I want us to step back for just a moment here and I want us to sort of examine Naomi's belief that God has brought calamity on her life. Now there are, I think there are some, a whole variety of reasons that we suffer. There's only a few that I want to talk about. A couple of them come from us and a couple of them do in fact come from God. So you could ask, why do we suffer? Well, I think we suffer and this is a quick and easy one to know about. It's pretty obvious, I think. We suffer because we do sinful, stupid things. I think that happens a whole lot, a way, a way, way, way more than we are actually comfortable admitting. And of course, we, we also suffer because others do very sinful, stupid kinds of things. But we also have seen throughout the scriptures and in our own lives that sometimes we suffer because God is testing us. There's some other kind of a work going on. And then every once in a while, like in the book of Ruth, we get this glimpse that God has this even greater plan that is unfolding, something that would be very difficult for us to see. So let's take them in order. We do sinful, stupid things. And I think our case study for this was Elimelech. Elimelech has done all sorts of boneheaded kinds of things here. Now, his name actually means my God is king, which would be a great way. You're starting this book with, with an Israelite whose God is king at a time when there were no kings in the land, right? So everybody was doing what they saw fit. And this guy said, no, God is king. That was his name. And his wife was pleasant. Like, this looks like it could be a really great story. But, of course, he failed to live up to his namesake. We, we remember he left Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the name of the, the city, uh, it means house of bread. And so a famine hits the nation, and he leaves the house of bread, which is already pretty idiotic, and he goes and travels to Moab, which, because we, what we've seen in previous weeks, was a terrible terrible idea and yet that's what he does we do these sinful and stupid things and you might say yeah but come on relax didn't you read the story like there was a famine in the land i mean what would you do the people were hungry obviously elimelech was just simply looking for a safer better more pleasant life for his family who can blame him well, apparently God can. I think this sometimes troubles us. I think the background of this is really important because at this time in history, the land was exceptionally important to how God was dealing with his people. And the evidence of God's blessing was abundance. And so he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which happens way before this time in history, he said to them, if you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, all these blessings will come on you. 
you will be blessed. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. He said, listen, you're going to take this land, and if you do as I say, if you obey me in this land, then your, your wombs are going to prosper. You will have kids, and they will do well, and there will, you will never be hungry. The land will produce for you. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, you will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your hand. The sky over your head will be bronze. The ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little. He's telling them, listen, you want, you, if you deny me, if you refuse to obey, if you don't put me first in your life, then you will experience famine and, and your children will suffer. See, the reason that there is a famine in the land of Israel, the reason there isn't any bread in the city of bread is because the people had turned away from God. And Elimelech, he, said, he decides to take matters into his own hands. Now, in the ancient world, it was very common for people to sort of view their deities as like the regional deity of an area, like of a country maybe, or even of a terrain. So you might have a god of the mountains, and you might, like, that's up in like Moab, you go up there, and he's, got, he's the god, he controls the mountain areas. And then, you know, Yahweh, the, the Jewish god, he seems to control the valley, because the Israelites were very powerful down there. And then like the Philistines, their god is the water guy, so he controls that, and that's why they get to travel the Mediterranean without like dying. And so if you fought another country on their turf, that means their god was more powerful, they would probably rout you and destroy you. You would never want to do that unless your god happened to be more powerful. And so here you have Elimelech who is leaving the land of famine, taking matters into his own hands because what he's really doing is he's running from the judgment of God. He's saying, I'm out of here. God promised that this would happen, and I'm bailing. But this is actually a stupid and sinful thing because you cannot run from God. If you are being judged by God, if there is heartache and pain and suffering because of the, the sinful things that you have done, you cannot run outrun Yahweh. He isn't a regional God. He's God of everything, heaven, earth, the land, the sea. That was the key part that the Israelites brought into this sort of, uh, you know, their monotheism brought into this whole polytheistic world. They said, no, there is only one God and he has sovereignty over everything. You can't outrun him. And so if your suffering is the result of your own hands, don't blame God. And more importantly, don't run to Moab. You cannot run away. There is only one response to a God-ordained famine in your life. Repentance. That's it. You need to turn around and you need to go back to him. You don't keep running you turn around and you submit yourself to him and you say, no, forgive me. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to be this person. And I know there are, there are often consequences, but I'm asking for your mercy and for your forgiveness. And God is quick 
to offer that to us. Of course, others do sinful and stupid things, and that's another reason we suffer. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not. But you see, here's the kicker. It doesn't really matter whether it's sin or stupidity or ignorance and disobedience or whether it's our sin or it's other people's sin. All of these things cause untold suffering in this world and placing blame is rarely going to be helpful and it is hardly any comfort to those who are suffering from other people's bad decisions. But this is the key thing we have to remember. And this is what Naomi was starting to, to vocalize for us. God still allowed it. He could have stopped it, but didn't. And at first, that seems like terrible news. But God may very well have other plans for your suffering. He might have other plans. Throughout the scripture, we see that God might be testing us. Happens all the time. Naomi was being tested. I mean, would she in fact return? Would she still trust Yahweh despite her circumstances? Ruth was being tested. Would she choose Yahweh and uncertainty in a land that was not her own over security and safety of going back to her family and her pagan gods? They were being tested, no doubt. And testing is so important to the soul. There's a study done by UC Berkeley many years ago. They took an amoeba and they put it in like amoeba paradise, right? So like put, gave in the amoeba everything it needed. It didn't have to struggle for anything. The right temperature, the right food, the right moisture, whatever makes an amoeba happy. They gave the happy, you know, happy pills to the amoeba. That was it. It was great. So you would think this would be like, the, the, like just the most delighted amoeba in the world. Guess what happened to it? It died. It died. The pleasant life can kill you. See, we need challenge. We need struggle in order to thrive, in order to be refined. We must experience the challenge of this world. You know, I, I will regularly talk to people who will who will come and talk to me about their life, and they'll say, I'll be like, so what's going on? You know, uh, no, I mean, things are good. Well, good, like, how? Like, well, you know, there's no big catastrophes. There's no big crisis. Like, everything seems to be just kind of going. One day leads to the next, leads to the next. And I'm like, all right, so then why, why are we talking? Because that's not normal. Like, if people don't comment, like, hey, let's talk, Robert. Uh, everything's awesome. That's that rare. And so, um, I'm like, so why are we talking? And they'll say, you know, because something's wrong. Well, what's wrong? And they go, I don't know. It's like, it's like my soul is like, vacant. You know, the, the way they describe it, it's like every page is blank. There's no story. There's nothing going on. They're just going through the motions. And somehow, it, leaves, it leads to this meaningless sort of blank. Suffering can and will refine you. But our suffering goes beyond even God testing us. Our heartache and our suffering is God destroying our lesser dreams. He's shattering them. See, ultimately, God took Elimelech. Ultimately, God let Naomi's sons die. It was God who left Naomi and Ruth widows, now dependent on the whims of others. So let me lay it out like this for us. God 
cannot be trusted to relieve all of our suffering in this life. Let me say it again. God cannot be trusted to relieve all of our suffering in this life. You will never have a pain-free life this side of eternity. It will not happen. And I do not care what you hear from Oprah or Chopra. You don't get your best life now. You just don't. We will suffer in this life. So let's just admit that, can we? Can we just get to the point where we get it over with and get it out there so that we can actually start to come to grips with it? Because it is only then that we will be able to move into the greater truth that it points us toward. See, this life isn't his final purpose for you. It just isn't. He is writing a greater story. And God can always be trusted to work all things for the good of his children. He can always be trusted. So let's take your life, this multi-epic tale. How could you possibly, this is it, it's, it's thousands of pages with intricate plot twists, deep character development laced page after page. How could you possibly know what one page of suffering is for? I mean, how would you possibly know it? How, what will this page be for you? What if this is, what if this is just, this is it, one page, that's all you get out of this epic tale. So whose is it? Here, Lorraine, this is yours. This is your one page. There you go. What could you, this is, this is actually the Lord of the Rings. So what does that mean? If anybody's read it, you know that one page is going to tell you nothing about the greater story. But if every single person, oh, you get to the end, let's get to the end of the story here. That's going to be, that's going to be your page of suffering. How much is really going to be in it? I mean, what would you be able to tell me about it? In a book this complex, you're going to tell me very little. You might have only one small conversation between two minor characters. That's what Tolkien often did. But what we do is we experience it page by page. We look at it and we go, oh my goodness, this is my story. And, and Melani, here it is. There is your chapter. There is your one page of suffering. And you think it's your whole story, but of course it's not. It's not even a chapter in one of the volumes of your life. Not even a chapter. And, and guess what? I'm not even convinced that your story ends when Christ returns. How do we not know what, what's coming later? We don't know. But you see, God does. And he works all of these things out in some incredibly powerful ways. There's a book called Shattered Dreams by Larry Crabb. It's where I got this idea of lesser dreams from. And he says that our lesser dreams must be shattered. Our suffering can tear down our lesser dreams and make way for a greater story to be written. This is how he phrases it. What humanity really wants and needs is an encounter with God. But we don't know that. 
We dream lower dreams and think that there are none higher. We dream of good marriages and talented kids and enough health and money to enjoy life, rewarding work and opportunity to make a difference in the world. All good things, of course we want them, but we think they're the best things. And that's what God calls foolish. He tells us what we really need, what we really long for is an encounter with God. That's the truly blessed life, to know him and love him and trust him despite our circumstances. So when our lesser dreams get shattered, an unexpected storyline opens up, a twist, an incredible plot shift happens when our lesser dreams get shattered. And a story begins to unfold that brings us into the realm of the Father. And that's where we grow in our trust in God and we serve others despite the cost, where we learn to patiently wait for this blessed happiness where we will be reunited with God in heaven. Larry Crabb, he goes on to say, God sets out to shatter our lesser dreams. So while we suffer, it seems God is doing nothing or at least nothing we want him to do. While we suffer, God is leading us to the center of our soul where our deepest emotions and passions are felt. There, we discover our desire and need for God, a desire that wants to grow larger than our desire for things of this world. We want God more than the blessings of life. See, these shattered dreams, they're simply a chapter in a much larger story, perhaps a mere page. You think of the story of Ruth. At the end of the book of Ruth, Naomi gets a grandchild through Ruth and Boaz. That's pretty spectacular. She actually ends up, it was a, that's a spoiler, sorry, if you hadn't read the book, sorry about that. That's a spoiler, there it is. I should have warned you, but it's a spoiler. Naomi gets a grandchild, and that grandchild becomes the father of a line that leads to King David. David ends up being this just and kind man, just like his great-great-grandfather, Boaz. So how does that play out? Well, if you compare the two, you have Boaz, who restored justice and kindness and mercy and protection for Naomi and Ruth. And that's why you read this story and you go, this is so beautiful, look what he did. But King David... He reversed all of the heartache of this period in history. He rewrote the legacy of the book of Judges. And he restored justice and kindness and mercy and protection, not simply for Naomi and Ruth, not simply for two widows, but for the whole people of God, a whole nation. And that was only the beginning of the story. That's as much as they would have known. Right? So everybody who's reading this for another 500 years, another 1,000 years, another 1,500, all they know is that this story was about King David. All Ruth and Naomi knew was it was about them. But we now look at it from the point of view of the New Testament, and we realize it's a story about Jesus because you trace David's ancestry, and it leads right to Christ, our Savior and our Messiah. And so you now have Jesus who restores justice and kindness and mercy and protection to everyone, not simply one nation, but to everyone who will trust in him. And how did Jesus accomplish this? Through suffering. He accomplished it 
through suffering. A suffering that in the garden he didn't want. He had a lesser dream that was shattered in the garden. And in that, God made Christ our Savior. Listen, if you were, were to rip out every page of heartache in your life, if you were to rip out every page of suffering, then your best story would never be told. God is in the middle of this beautiful story and it, it requires him to play his part and to deconstruct our lesser dreams. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to lead us in a song that is designed, to, by, designed for us to offer it up as a prayer. And so as they come up and they lead it in us, I'm asking that you would use it as a prayer of consecration for your own life. Sing it with us and, and let it be God calling you to a full life of surrender. And after that song, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. The prayer team is going to come up here and some of the staff are going to be up here. And we're going to give you an opportunity to come up and to do a little bit of your own business with God. Because here's the reality. Your suffering does not mean that God loves you any less. Your suffering might very well be God calling you back. Will you come back? Will you come back to him today? You might be saying, yeah, but I screwed up. Like, it's my own, it's my own fault. It was my own mistakes. No better time. Maybe you're in the midst of something right now and you're like, this is breaking my heart because I know what it's going to do to me, my family, the people that I care about. I know what I've done to my friends and how I've let them down and how I betrayed them. And God's saying, I can restore these things. I can renew them. Come back. Don't run to Moab. Make a decision today to consecrate yourself fully and completely. And maybe for you, it's something different. Maybe you're not suffering because of your own sin. Maybe you're saying, you know what? It's not about what I've done. It's what other people have done, or I don't even know why I'm suffering. And maybe you're getting to that point where you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm running out of hope. Let today be a day where you decide to move more fully and completely into surrender. Let it be a day where you come forward. We pray for you. We mark this moment as the day you've said, listen, I don't get it. I don't see every day. I don't understand every page, but I do want to trust more and more that you're working this out according to your perfect plan and good plan for my life. Would you stand as we sing?